So have you ever heard a group of kids that are just squealing with delight? I want to talk to you about that. What brings you that kind of joy, that kind of delight? I asked some friends this week, and so I got a little top 10 for you. You ready for this? All right, number 10. The Bucks in six, right? Giannis is 50, 15 boards, five blocks. That was awesome, right? Number nine, family time. That brings us great joy, right? All being together. Number eight, our kids laughing, enjoying each other. Number seven, food, a great meal with friends and family. I'm thinking right now, a good ripe Georgia peach, right? A juicy cheeseburger, maybe a little bacon and avocado on it. How about some fresh sweet corn? And top it off with like some hot fudge sundaes, right? Food, man, that's certain kinds of food, right? That is, whew, that's it. Beauty, the beauty of God's world, his creation, and the beauty of the arts. So from a sunset to a great piece of music. Uh, number five, being in God's presence, in his word, worshiping him. Number four, when I forget my Aldi quarter and some kind person has left their quarter in the cart, paying it forward, my joy, my delight. Uh, number three, getting a warning instead of a ticket. Did that ever happen to you? Oh, and my classic getting a warning is, I'm in college, I'm working for a construction company. I'm downtown Chicago on a job at Rush Presbyterian Hospital. We're building out some space for their nursing school. And I'm getting to the job site. I'm turning through an intersection. The light turns red right as I'm in the middle of it. And I see a cop that's just following me. I'm going, oh my word, I'm gonna get pulled over. But I'm like a block away. He hasn't put his lights on, the siren's not on. I'm thinking, just keep going to the job site as quick as you can. I got there, I parked the car, I'm walking to the door. I'm almost to the door when all of a sudden the loudspeaker gets on. <laughs> you know, hey buddy, we need to talk to you. So you know the drill. I, I go over to the cop car, I pull out my wallet, I give him my driver's license. And to my shock, he says, my fare. Listen, nobody who looks at my name says my fare. And I'm thinking, this could be my lucky day. He says, my fare. He says, you don't have a sister named Monique, do you? I said, yeah, Monique's my oldest sister. I'm really feeling good about it. I grab my wallet and I pull out a picture of Monique and Gardy, my brother-in-law, and I'm talking to her and he says, look, I went to school with your sister. And so I didn't get the ticket for running the red light. I got the warning. That was a good day. It brought me great delight, but not as much as delight as I have in sharing the good news of God's love with someone who's investigating the claims to Christ. That was number two. Number one is this. <laughs> You're gonna love this. That this pandemic will end one day. Amen to that, right? So what do you delight in? Have you ever thought about, well, what does God find joy in? What, what is his delight? In fact, the book of Micah is gonna answer that question. And as we find the question, uh, we're going to come to the conclusion that is right at the heart of Micah's message. And that is, who is like our God? In fact, that's what Micah means. Who is like Yahweh? Who is like our God? Let me just share a few things about the man and his times before we jump into the book itself. So we don't know much about his family, but we know where he lived. He lived in a place called Morasheth. It was a backwater place, some 20, 22 miles southwest of Jerusalem. So he's in the southern kingdom. 
And he's kind of a, a nobody. We don't know anything about his family from pretty much nowhere. In fact, Morasheth was so small that he was often referred to like in chapter 1, verse 14, as Morasheth Gath. It's just like the suburb of, of Gath. Uh, what we know is that um, he wasn't a nobody from nowhere. He was God's special agent, like he was his divine messenger, and he was on a miss mission. We read this in chapter 3, verse 8. But as for me, I'm filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgressions, to Israel his sins. So that, that's what he was bringing in the middle of the 8th century. He's a contemporary of Isaiah and Hosea. Uh, he's, he's, he's serving under the reigns of Jotham and Ahaz and King Ezekiah, three kings in the southern kingdom, middle of the 8th century. And his message is a message of warning, you guys. You're not following God. You're not being faithful to the covenant. And judgment is coming. He's saying that to the northern kingdom. And he's saying it not just to Samaria, but to Jerusalem. He's saying it to the southern kingdom. But it wasn't just a message of warning. It's also a message of hope. Because in laced in between these different messages uh, uh, and visions of God's judgment are these visions of God's grace and his restoration and rebuilding of Jerusalem and extending their boundaries of the nations coming in, these beautiful pictures of hope. So what does God delight in? Well, first Micah tells us what God does not delight in. And he's going to, if we could put it into two categories, he's going to point out two things. And the first has to do with their relationship with him. And specifically, he points out these high places, they're called, which is all about their idolatry. So get to Micah in the Old Testament or follow along as you see the uh, scriptures right here before you. So Micah chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Look. The Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He's coming down from heaven. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. This is language of judgment. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? That's where they set up that false worship of idols, Back under Jeroboam II, what is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem, the very place where the temple of God was? They've set up these high places. So we need to talk about high places and understand it's not just a high place in the city, which it was, but it was a place of worship. And it was worshiping idols in these foreign gods. So it all goes back to the other nations around them. Historically, for the people of God, it goes back to their king, the king of peace, Solomon, who's the wisest man who ever lived. But man, he just didn't have it right with women. And he married 700 wives along with his 300 concubines. And many of those women came from other places and they brought their idols with them. And the worship of these gods got mixed in with the worship of Israel's God, Yahweh, the covenant God. And so that's what the, the high places were about. And the first commandments in, in the Decalogue, 
Decalogue and the Ten Commands was, you shall have no other gods before me and you shall not make a god in a graven image and bow down and worship it. So they're just blowing that all out of the water. Started up in the Northern Kingdom and it's crept and made its way all the way down to the Southern Kingdom. And the imagery here is God is hot. He's mad. He's angry. He's gonna deal with that. Look at chapter five, verses 12 through 14. I'll destroy your witchcraft and you will no longer cast spells. I'll destroy your idols and your sacred stones from among you. You'll no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I'll uproot from among you your Asherah poles when I demolish your cities. So God is not delighting in their idolatry, in their high places, in their false worship. And to make matters worse, the religious leaders weren't leading people in the right direction back towards God. No, they refused to listen to God's word through the prophet. And they're plugging their ears and they're saying, don't guys, don't listen to him. We're good with God. God's good with us. Everything's fine. It's peace, peace here in, in Israel. So don't worry about it. They're the ones who set up the worship. They're the ones who have the temple prostitutes temple prostitution and all the craziness around those high places. And we read this in Micah chapter three, verse five. This is what the Lord says. As for the prophets who lead my people astray, they proclaim peace if they have something to eat, but prepare to wage war against anyone who refuses to feed them. In other words, they're not serving God. They don't have the best of their people in mind. They have their own selves' best interest. And so it's all about greed. It's all about themselves. And it's all broken and God's against it. Now, let me give an important perspective on these high places because it's pretty easy for us to go. Can't relate to that at all. We don't have any idols. I don't have any idols. Not made out of wood or stone. And so I'm good. So it's good to just catch up with what's going on in Israel at this time. What's going on is they continue to believe in Yahweh, in the covenant God, the creator God, Israel's God. They believe in God. They're actually offering sacrifices to Yahweh at the temple, but they're also mixing in all these other religions and serving these other idols and they're not worshiping the one true God in the, in the true way in the right places. And so that's what's going on. It's called syncretism. It's where you're mixing things together, right? And so we'll see this today in other cultures. When I've been to Africa, I've talked to pastors in Africa. And a lot of the people come out of this animistic culture with all these spirits and witch doctors and they put their faith in Jesus Christ. And when their child gets sick, they're praying to Jesus for healing and just to make it doubly sure that their child gets better, they're gonna go to the witch doctor too. And we go, well, that's crazy. Well, that wouldn't be much different than if we used to go to the horoscopes and we still do, even though we trust Jesus. We used to really believe in those crystals and now we believe in Jesus and sometimes we go back to the crystals or what is it? We're, we're an idol factory. That's what the great reformer John Calvin says. The human heart is an idol factory. And I love what Tim Keller says in his excellent little book, couldn't re recommend it more, Counterfeit Gods. I love what he says about idols. An idol is anything more important to you than God. 
Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to, to give you what only God can give you. So they're the things we go for meaning. They're the things we go to for success. They're the things we go to for significance, for security. And the way to describe the relationship we have with these things, with these gods, with these high places, is we worship those things. Those things become more important than God himself. So they for sure were not loving God as the law required, the Shema, hero Israel. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Deuteronomy chapter six, verse five. God does not delight in false worship. And there's a second thing that he's gonna point out. And this has to do with our relationship and their relationship with their neighbor. God does not delight in, a, in injustice, in corruption, in extortion, in oppression. He doesn't delight in that. It says of the people, injustice was everywhere. Chapter three, verse two, they hated good and they loved evil. It reminds us of Amos chapter five, verse 12. So injustice, injustice came through the abuse of power by the people who were wealthy, by the people who had position, by the people who had privilege, taking advantage of the weak and the vulnerable for their own selfish gain, settling into these luxurious lifestyles, all at the expense of their brothers and sisters who were less fortunate. Makes me think of the story that came out of France and the vice president of Equatorial Guinea, who has been, you know, looking for an appeal. He didn't get the appeal. He's going to get convicted for all kinds of corruption and extortion. He's taken millions and millions of dollars out of his own country. So he's the son of the longstanding president and he's got mansions all over the world and his people back home are suffering. Happens today in big ways and in small ways. So I'm going to read you some portions that back this up in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, 8 and 9, verse 11. Verse 1, chapter 2. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light, they carry it out because it's in their power to do it. You note it. It's in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. It reminds us of the story of King Ahab that looked at Naboth's vineyard and he coveted it, wanted it, ends up killing Naboth to get it. They defraud people of their homes. That word defraud is also uh, sometimes translated, they oppress people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance, of their land. Verse eight, lately my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without a care. Like men returning from battle, you drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. The blessing referring to the land that I gave them. Verse 11, if a liar and deceiver comes and says, I'll prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, that would be just the prophet for this people. That's what they were all on to. Extortion, corruption, all at the expense of the vulnerable to live in luxury. Injustice was everywhere. The leaders were bribing and being bribed and extorting. The civic leaders, the religious leaders. Chapter three, verse one. Then I said, listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, you should not embrace, you should not embrace justice. 
You who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. He's saying to the leaders, you guys, you're, you're here to serve these people and you are acting like barbarians, like foreign powers that would come in and flay the skin off of their captors. It was the leaders, but it was in the marketplace, in their business dealings. The scales were unjust. They were fixing the prices, just like what goes on today all the time. And the poor suffer. They were deceitful. Chapter 6, verse 12, their tongue speaking deceitfully. Violence was rampant. 7, verse 2 says, everyone lies in wait to shed blood. This is what it was like in Micah's day. High places, idolatry, sexual perversion around worship, craziness, corruption, oppression, injustice, just all broken in terms of their relationships with each other. And, and Micah is saying on God's behalf, this is not okay. When you use your position, when you use your power, when you use your privilege and your wealth to take advantage of people for your own selfish gain, it's not okay with God. God does not, he does not delight in the abuse of your power, position, and privilege. And what Micah gives us here is a connector to these two. Their failure to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and their failure to love their neighbor or themselves has a common root and denominator and it's pride. Chapter two, verse three, he says this, you will no longer walk proudly. When the Bible uses the, the word and image of walking, He's saying this is how we're to live our lives. These guys were walking. They were living in pride and it manifested in the creation of this crazy religion and mix of things. It manifested in their crazy treatment of others so that they would just make it all about themselves. C.S. Lewis gives three reasons for uh, looking at pride as in a, in a sense the supreme defect or the greatest sin. Not that the Bible ever gradates sin, but he makes his argument. First, because the devil became the devil by pride. Second, because pride is the cause of every other vice or every other sin. Third, because pride is completely anti-God and anti-other state of mind. Pride, he says, is a severely disordered love for self. So what's God's response to the things that are offensive to him, the things that are ruining a nation and gonna bring them right into the teeth of foreign nations that'll drag them away into exile. What's God's response? Chapter six, verse three and four. What have I done to you? And he rehearses their history. Are, are you forgetting that you guys used to be slaves in Egypt and I rescued you and I brought you into the promised land? Are you forgetting how I have faithfully been your God all these years? And then he says, here's what I'm going to do with your idols. I'm going to tear them down. I'm going to burn them. I'm going to destroy them. Chapter one and chapter five. I'm going to bring a conqueror to lead you away. Certain disaster is coming. 
I'm not gonna answer your calls and prayers for help. I'm not gonna give you direction and word. You just keep following your false prophets that say peace, peace, peace. And I don't want your offerings. I don't want your offerings. I want justice, mercy, and humility. And this gets us to the classic text that you may know about. If there's a classic text in Micah, which we could have spent the whole time on this week, but we're not because we're gonna do a whole series on Micah 6, 8. It's Micah 6, 6 through 8. So turn over to Micah 6, 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? How should I approach the holy God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? We're going to spend... Uh, a whole eight weeks in February and March unpacking. Uh, this is our desire to be Christ-centered church for all people. So what does it look like for a church for all people to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God? We're gonna just chase that, those themes all the way through the scriptures. But this is God's response. This is what I want from you. And they were failing. They were pulling a big F in this whole matter of loving God and loving their neighbor, specifically in the areas of justice and mercy and humility. And God's response is anger. And Micah's response in chapter one is, is mourning and sadness. Chapter one, verse eight, he's weeping and wailing. He's going about barefoot. He's not covered in sackcloth and ashes. He is making a point. He's walking around stark naked, howling, it says, like a jackal over the sin of his people. And yet, Micah was filled with hope. And we ask the question, how in the world could he be filled with hope? Because though our God does not delight in idolatry and injustice, our God delights, chapter 7, verse 18 through 20, in showing mercy. This is what God delights in, finds great pleasure in, according to Micah, mercy. And you know the difference, right, between justice and mercy. Justice is, I should have got the ticket. I ran the red light. Mercy is, I didn't get what I deserved. God delights in mercy. And what God's mercy looks like to those who have failed him, failed to love him and his neighbor perfectly is amazing. It is amazing. And it leads us to exclaim, who is like our God who delights not in, in bringing judgment, but he delights in showing mercy. Look at chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? The remnant would be the, the portion of God's people that remain faithful, right? They, they keep taking God at his word, believing his promises and obeying his commands. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. 
You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all of our iniquities in the depths of the sea. You'll be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. So there is no one like our God who is committed to deal with evil and right all wrongs. But a God who true to his character and faithful to his word of promise delights in showing mercy to sinners like God's people back then and you and me today. So let's kind of explore the dimensions of his mercy as it's unfolded here in chapter seven, verses 18 through 20. The first thing, that we see about God's mercy is he forgives and he pardons our sin and transgressions. The Bible is clear. All of us have sinned. We've fallen short of the glory of God. We can see that in the Old Testament in places like Psalm 14 and we can see it in a place like Romans 3, 23. All have sinned. Fallen short of the standard of God, the glory of God, his perfection. And we know, the Bible says, that the result of sin is death. The penalty, the wages of our sin is death physical separation, spiritual separation. And it says here that he forgives. And the imagery here is that he crushes under his foot our sin, that he chucks it into the depths of the deepest sea, which made me go to Google. So where is that? How deep is that? The Mariana Trench, just off of the island of Guam in the Pacific, this trench is over 1,500 miles long. And, and that deepest part, you guys, is seven miles deep. It's 36,200 feet deep. The temperatures at the bottom are just above freezing. And everything is drowning in darkness. You can't get there, live there. Mount Everest at the bottom, placed at the bottom of the Mariana Trench, is still going to end up 7,000 feet below sea level. And he says, I got the power to crush your sin, the penalty of your sin, that it would bring death and separation from you and me to a God who made us and loves us. That he will not only crush it, he'll remove it. That's what he's talking about. Isaiah will say, as far as the east is from the west, so far, God says, have I removed your sin from me? The New Testament says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to, uh, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. Oh, this is awesome. Our sin is crushed. It's defeated. It's removed forever. There's like, some have said, there's a no fishing sign that he places. But all, all you need to know is just get to the Mariana Trench and go, you can't get there at the bottom of that trench. You physically can't get there. That's what God does with our sin. He goes on to talk about the dimensions of his mercy, that he will not stay angry. No, because he's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. He relents in sending calamity. He's full of compassion and love. He's faithful and true to his word of promise to Abraham. In Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna make you the father of a great nation. All the nations, all, all the families of the world are gonna be blessed through you. Anybody who blesses you, I'm gonna bless them. Anybody who curses you, I'm gonna curse them. I'm gonna give you the land. Your name's gonna be great. And he says, I'm gonna be faithful. I'm gonna be faithful. And so he delights in showing mercy. And we're left with a puzzle. 
How does it work? How does a holy and just God who must deal with evil and make it right, and we, whether you like that or not, I guarantee you, you like the concept of justice when you're on the wrong end of it. We all want justice when injustice has been part of our world. We, we long for that. And so how, how does it work that we deserve his justice? How in the world could we receive his mercy when we're sinners? And we haven't loved God with all of our heart, just like them. And we haven't loved our neighbor as ourselves. And the answer to the question is, chapter five, verse two, four through five. Chapter five, but you Bethlehem Ephrathah, it's gonna sound like a Christmas text, cause it is. But you Bethlehem, house of bread, Ephrathah, though you were small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. In other words, this eternal king that he promised King David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. From Bethlehem, verse 4, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. That's how it works. Jesus Christ came into this world. He was crushed by our sin to crush uh, sin and remove it forever. All sin dealt with on the cross. He was the one that was bound and beaten that we might be freed and blessed. He's the good shepherd that laid down his life for the sheep. He was crucified, dead and buried so that we could live for God and others. He gave up his spirit, breathing his last so that we could receive his spirit. He experienced injustice and violence so that we could receive God's peace. He bore God's wrath on the cross. God's justice was satisfied. That's why we can receive his love and his mercy. He's the ultimate judge, Jesus Christ, coming back to judge the nations. And yet on the cross, he got off the bench. He mounted the cross where he bore our sin and now he stands as our advocate, our defense lawyer, pleading our case before a holy God. He delighted and delights in showing mercy when our sin put him on the cross. Who is like our God? A God who delights in showing mercy. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God of the Old Testament. This is the God who was made perfectly known to us through Jesus Christ. And so I don't know how you're dealing with your sin, but you cannot run from it. You cannot remove it, right? You can't erase it. You can't just bury it. You can't work it off, but you can have it dealt with by Jesus who will destroy it and remove it forever. Your sin and your guilt. That is who our God is. A God who delights in showing you mercy. Have you received his mercy, the forgiveness of sin through faith in Christ? Receive his mercy and if we have, we are to be people who are merciful. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful for they will continue to just collide with God's mercy and grace. Who is like our God who delights in showing mercy? We need it. Church, we have it. 
by God's grace through faith in Christ, receive it. Let's pray. Father, forgive our pride. Forgive our high places. Our pursuit of luxury, our neglect or abuse of the vulnerable. Have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. Jesus, we believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, that you offered your life on our behalf and that you paid for all that we have done that was not loving your Father with all of our heart, for all that we've done that was not loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. And like Micah, give us the strength and power of your Spirit, even the Holy Spirit, that we might live God-honoring lives, that we'd have the power to tear down the idols of our lives, that we'd have the power to get beyond ourselves to care for justice and mercy, that we would walk humbly before you and that our lives would be a beautiful light and a beautiful fragrance to a world that is desperately lost without you. Oh God, who is like you? A God who delights in showing us mercy. Praise be to your name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.